Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today is an interview episode with Paul Fahey. He writes at Where Peter Is, where he is also a co-founder. He's a catechist, a speaker, He and he blogs at the Pope Francis Generation. Uh, he studies counseling. He likes long walk, walks on the beach and copious marshmallows in his hot cocoa. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Jake, it's nice to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, today we're going to be talking about private property, Catholic social teaching. Uh, we're going to be covering all sorts of awesome topics, but let's just kick it right off with, can you give a brief description of what is the church's teaching on private property? Yeah, um, um, this conversation that we're having here was provoked by um, an article that I wrote last week um, for Where Peter Is that was the fruit of several years of reading um, Catholic social teaching. I, uh, um, years ago, I got my bachelor's degree in theology and learned next to nothing about Catholic social teaching. And then as a young adult, I, I just started reading stuff and realized um, uh, there was there was a lot here that, that I didn't know that was both very compelling um, and, and very challenging. And, and one of those, and that's something I think that's um, really essential to Catholic social teaching is its understanding of um, the use of private property, uh, which is very different than what our contemporary culture would uh, would value. So let, let me just kind of lay out briefly, and I want you to react to it, um, kind of how I view the Catholic um, conception of private property. And you can critique it, offer your own opinions, all that good stuff, but it might be a good launching off point. I'm not familiar. If, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of, I believe his name is Andrew Willard Jones. Um, he wrote <laughs> the book Before Church and State. You familiar? Nope. With that? No. Oh, you would love it. You'd love it right up your alley. Um, but he talks a lot about um, the peace, or you know, the deeper, more more historic word shalom, and he describes it as a dense interconnection of radically different, uh, dense in- interconnection of love of radically differentiated peoples mm-hmm. by the more different we are, the more opportunities we can connect in different um, permutations and thereby build the fabric of the peace. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool, powerful definition of that. So he would describe like within a family, the fact that father, mother, and child are all different was actually the prerequisite for the common goods, which are derivative of the family. It's just that difference which allows them to, to love. So the peace is viewed in, in his, and I, I think generally the Catholic tradition, as the most fundamental thing. And then would you agree or disagree or nuance that private property is derivative of the peace? So it, the most fundamental thing are these relationships of love, this um, differentiation of persons. And then out of that flows a utilitarian construct um, which isn't arbitrary at all, but instead is relational and um, relates to our, co- our responsibilities to one another. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the language of the church's social encyclicals, um, I think they communicate. Um, I think they communicate that, but with different words. So they would talk about how um, uh, human persons are made in the image and likeness of God. And we, we say that a lot in the Catholic faith. But one of the things we often miss is that um, our God is not a single individual. Our God is one God who is a community of three persons. So human beings are made in the image and likeness of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, John Paul II gets at this in his Theology of the Body, 
when he talks about how um, a married couple image God in a greater way than um, man or woman in isolation. Um, likewise, the, the church's social teaching recognizes that human persons are radically interdependent on each other, um, that we come into the world not by our own effort, um, that we cannot educate ourselves or sustain ourselves. And, you know, as the past year and a half of the pandemic has shown, people in isolation can't thrive without um, connection with other people. So um, the community, the common good, um, is seen as very fundamental in Catholic social thought. So we would see, so the, the church has an ancient doctrine called the universal destination of goods. And that is that God created the whole of the material world um, for the sake of human flourishing. Um, so private property, the right to private property is a, um, you, I think the word you used is utilitarian. Um, I would say pragmatic right um, that's ordered to or serves the, the greater good, which is the universal destination of goods. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you want to provide some examples or maybe I can come up with something. What would be an example of the of uh, I like your word pragmatic use of of private property in furthering the common good? Yeah. So what the um, if we talk about the universal destination of goods, um, the if the material world, if all of it is made for all of humanity, um, the the material goods of the earth have to be. Uh, developed. They have to be refined. They have to be distributed. Um, they don't just pop out of the ground ready um, <laughs> for human use, right? So um, the church recognizes that people taking personal responsibility, so private ownership of the material goods of the earth, is what is the means by which human beings develop the goods of the earth. So, uh, you know, a really almost cliche example is, is a garden. If you have a community garden that nobody is individually responsible for, it's more likely to go into disarray than a community where everyone has their own private garden that they feel personal, resp personal responsibility for. So that's the like pragmatic right where if someone feels personally responsible for something, they're more apt to develop it. Now, um, the next step that the church makes is, okay, you have the right to private property, the right to this personal ownership over the goods of the earth. But if the goods of the earth are meant for everybody, then you don't have the right to do whatever you want with it. So if I have a garden in my backyard and I have more than what I need to feed my family, I'm obligated, not just to ask, but obligated by the moral law to share my access with um, families in my community who wouldn't have enough to continue that analogy. Now, I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of moving into Catholic social teaching, and I, I like the way that you describe uh, different levels of wealth. Could you describe, in your article, could you describe them a little bit um, here, and what our responsibilities mean for each one of those levels? Yeah, so um, I, I believe this comes from, from St. Thomas Aquinas, but it's, it's articulated a little bit more explicitly in um, uh, Pope Leo's encyclical, Rerum Navarum, and he talks about... Um, uh, three tiers of material goods or, or property. The first is what a person or a family needs to survive. So this would be food, shelter, access to healthcare, what's, what's essential for survival. Um, so that's the first tier, 
the second tier is what's um, necessary for flourishing, what's necessary for someone's vocation, someone's state in life. Um, now, this is very subjective in, in the sense that what I need as um, you know, a parent of four kids in rural Michigan, um, the material goods I need to live a flourishing life um, is different than what someone in New York City um, who's living by themselves may need or someone in Tokyo, or someone in Brazil. Um, it's very dependent on the context, right? Um, but it's what someone needs for to live a dignified life. And the church talks about a dignified life is where um, they don't have to work 80 hours a week, that they still have time for leisure and time for their family, where if they're frugal, they can save for the future, where um, they, can, uh, they can receive education um, they can participate in culture and participate in um, uh, leisure and hobbies and things like that. So there's a lot that goes into the second tier, and it is very subjective. Um, but that's kind of the, the boundaries, the general boundaries the church has put on that. And then the third tier is excess. It's anything above what someone needs um, for those first two tiers. And I'm sure lots of people would love to... Um blur the line between those two and say, well, actually for flourishing, I do need a 4,000 square foot house, three yeah. cars in the garage, <laughs> massive flat screen TV. And I'm just going to define flourishing as keeping up with the Joneses. But I, I assume that you would, uh, you would push back on that kind of view. Yeah. And, and it's hard. Um, in some cases, um, I, so it's very much a matter of, of conscience, I believe, right. Where um, the, where individual Christians are called to assess their material life and really ask the question, am I living a simple life or am I, or am I living a life of material excess? Um, and I'm going to discern different than my neighbor. But the, I think the most important thing is, am I internalizing what the gospels and what the church, the values that they are proposing? Am I internalizing them and trying to lift them out? Um, however, um, oh man, who is the person who said uh, that pornography is hard to define, but you know it when you see it? I, I think, think it's some congressman, right? <laughs> yeah, I think excess wealth is kind of the same thing. It's it's hard to it's hard to like put a threshold on it, but you also know excess wealth when you see excess wealth, right? Um, uh, I'm not going to judge the conscience of somebody else, but if someone has you know owns three mansions in different places across the country in a private jet. I can also recognize that that's objectively excess wealth. And uh, I mean, I would, I brought this up um, earlier before we started recording, but the story of um, a friend of mine who asked, what percentage do you have to tithe in the Catholic church? And I responded a hundred percent, you have to tithe everything. Right. And that yeah. is the, that is the core command of the, of the gospel where it says to love the Lord, thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and strength has been traditionally understood to include even your financial strength. So we are meant to turn everything over to God, and I mean, I, I guess, we, and that should that should strike people um, pretty darn hard, but to nuance that a bit and try not to give people a way out as much as um, a way through, that means that we, being baptized into Christ, have three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And we ought to use our our hearts, our mind, our soul, our strength 
to further those three things, to teach the faith, worship God, and care for the poor. So, you know, you bring up the, the multiple mansions, and I agree that definitely seems pretty excessive. But at the same time, we could imagine that being turned over for maybe not the purpose of the poor, but maybe for one of those first two purposes. Maybe they, um, they host amazing community events, and that helps people being drawn into the communal worship of God. Or maybe they use these as um, spaces or retreats or something um, for the uh, teaching of the faith. Um, can you reflect on on what our responsibilities are to those other missions? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure how valuable it is to uh, to to judge other people's wealth. I think I think there there is a point where we can say, yeah, this is this is excessive. But um, I think Catholic social teaching calls us to two things. And I think, unfortunately, in um, American culture, we have we have such a um, uh, a left right like partisan framework um, that I think that uh, it's easy for people to, to fall into um, uh, either one of these these viewpoints. But the church calls us to both. So I think it's easy for for someone to say. Um, well, what's most important with this teaching is creating the right social structures so that we have less wealth inequality and that to make sure we are redistributing uh, the wealth of, of the rich. I think the other camp is, well, no, we should just be focused on, um, on our own personal wealth and just let other people be um, a more libertarian type view. And the church is going to say, both the church is going to say you need to be concerned with the social structures and you need to be concerned with societal justice but you also need to be concerned with your own conscience and your own responsibilities um and that's the whole of our material life so it's not just our you know our assets or our cash in the bank it is is the recognition that um that my life is not my own. Um, you know, the church uses this word um, stewardship where I am not owner. I am steward of something that's been given to me by God um, for my sake and for the sake of others, for the sake of the community. Um, so I think th that is a value or the fundamental value that we need to really ingrain um, and integrate into our conscience. And that is, um, am I using my time, my wealth, my talents aren't for me to use selfishly. They're made to advance the kingdom of God. And am I doing that or am I hoarding any one of those things? Does that answer your question? I, I think so. Uh, you know, seemingly lurking in the background is the church's teaching on subsidiarity that I think we should um, make a little bit more explicit. Um, and you, we, we kind of touched on that throughout this, that First, you have that responsibility to, to yourself, to your family, and then it starts to spread out from there. And that's kind of why we have this Catholic both and about um, should we be concerned with ourselves or should we care about the poor? Well, the answer is both. And it seems like that needs to be situated in the doctrine of subsidiarity. So can you kind of explain what is subsidiarity and how it, exactly does it relate to this question? Yeah. So as a general principle, subsidiarity is, is, is that the um, lowest level of authority, whether that's civil authority or um, different uh, intermediary social groups or even the family, the lowest level of authority 
the level that's closest to the problem should address whatever the problem is. Um, what, subsidiarity, what, what subsidiarity isn't, um, in the U.S., I think we often adopt subsidiarity as a type of like federalism. And, and I think that's a mis, misunderstanding of it. At its core, subsidiarity is about respecting human freedom. And that is that um, human persons being made in the image and likeness of God with an intellect and a free will ought to be able to participate in their own growth and flourishing. So if you have an international, uh, you know, uh, uh, aid group coming in and making decisions for a local community, um, you're not allowing that local community to participate in their own growth and their own flourishing. And that would be a violation of subsidiarity. So the core of subsidiarity is people ought to be able to cooperate um, in their own development. That, that, I like that. I like that take on it. Um, I don't typically take it that way, um, but it, it's kind of bringing us to the question of, of um, e enabling, you know, I think that's often a concern with charity that, well, if we give to the poor, we're, we're just giving them a fish, not teaching them to fish. Um, if we give to the homeless, are we disincentivizing them from work? So your point is that um, there are, we, we got to be nuanced and very wise in how we do this because um, enabling would actually be a violation of their human dignity, their freedom, which flows from it. And it'd be limiting their ability to act for themselves in order to bring about their own flourishing. I'm not sure that I'm not sure it's enabling as much as presuming to know better than somebody else and to make decisions on their behalf. Um, I think that would be the more clear violation of subsidiarity. Um, I don't know. There's that there's a story from C.S. Lewis where um, that a friend of his uh talks about where him and uh, him and C.S. Lewis were uh, walking to a theater one evening and they come across, uh, you know, a panhandler, a beggar on the street. And C.S. Lewis apparently gives this person uh, a large sum of money. And his friend comments after the fact, and I was like, uh, that was a lot of money. The guy's just going to spend it on booze. And C.S. Lewis responds, so what? That's all I was going to spend it on. <laughs> um that the, there's this sense of um uh if and this is i mean this is where my personal conscience is at and that is uh if me questioning and being concerned about how how someone is going to use the resources i give them is actually preventing me from from being generous if, if it's actually then i think that's my problem and someone told me a long time ago that um, anyone asking, asking for help, for financial help, whatever that looks like, we should praise God for them and give them everything in our wallet um, and thank God for the opportunity to detach ourselves a little bit more. Um, and yeah, how they use it is, is between them and, and their conscience and their free people who can use it however they want. Um, that's how my conscience has been formed in this. I, uh, I've heard other valuable perspectives as well. Uh, but, bringing, but bringing it back to subsidiarity, I think the greatest violation is to presume to know better than, than somebody else and to make decisions for them. I would lean towards, towards your approach um, also. Um, 
I used to live in a city where we had a, a huge Christian um, college. And it was more of a, it was down Lynchburg, Virginia, actually. So Liberty University, if you've heard of it. Um, so we had, we had Christians everywhere. Um, there's also a fair amount of homeless people running around. And um, being the, I don't know, general deviant that I am, whenever I would meet one and they would ask for money, um, you know, I, I, would, I, would re- I would give them a little bit of ammunition for talking to other Christians. I would say, have you ever read Proverbs 31? And um, they'd say, no, I haven't. And I'd say, well, read the first part. And what it says is to give drink to those in poverty. Indeed, give strong drink to those who are, um, you know, to, to those who suffer. And I'm like, so <laughs> if people say they're concerned with, uh, you know, you going and buying drink, you can show them this, um, which always made their day. Uh, but but you know there is something to be said there that we we don't you know this is a luxury which, which we enjoy and without much um, pain of conscience but we want to deny to others um, and and I think that there's two sides to the equation there's what charity does for them and that's very important and we should have some concern we are in fact our brother's keeper but there's also what charity does for our own souls. And that's a very important thing. And to give sacrificially and give knowing that you're being taken advantage of at some level is very Christ-like. Because when Christ gave us himself, we took advantage of that. Yeah. Um, and we're supposed to follow the model of Christ. You know, he didn't make some type of strictly utilitarian calculus before he did the incarnation. It was just a generous outgrowth of love, knowing that the people who would persecute him know not what they do. Yeah, almost a impulsive or reckless, uh, you know, action of love. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, And you bring up a good point talking about charity. This is something that in its discussion on private property that the uh, the church distinguishes. So, um, well, we had this reading, the reading at Mass this past Sunday had John the Baptist um, telling the crowds, uh, you know, they come and they're they received his baptism of repentance. And then they're like, what should we do? How do we live our life? And the first thing John the Baptist says is if you have two coats, give your second coat to someone who doesn't have one. Um, The church has developed this tradition. You're going to see dozens of quotes from church fathers that all say the same thing. And that's essentially that um, any excess you have, the excess food in your cupboard, the excess clothes in your closet, the excess wealth, uh, in your storehouses um, belong to the poor. And it's explicitly couched in terms of theft. That possessing excess is theft from those who don't have enough. That the person who has two coats is stealing from the person who doesn't have a coat. Um, so, so when the church talks about what's the proper use of our um, material goods, our material wealth, um, it distinguishes justice and charity And it says we should not confuse um, what's given out of justice with charity. And so if if someone's giving from their excess, that is not charity. That is justice because that belonged to the poor person in the first place. It's no more more an act of charity than if I stole a TV from Best Buy and then returned it the next day. I'm not being particularly generous in doing that. Um, I'm just giving back what's owed to them. Uh, charity comes in when we give from our need. So Jesus points out the the woman at the temple who gives her last two pennies versus the people coming up and giving from their excess. And he makes that distinction very clear. 
this woman was more generous than everyone else here because she gave from her need. So I, I don't, you know, I want everybody to leave this podcast feeling at least a little bit guilty. Um, <laughs> I don't want anybody to, to hear the nuances or the counter arguments or the pushbacks and, and take those away from the podcast more than the uncomfortability that I think most people probably felt at those words. Um, I, I think absolutely. That that, and, yeah. and that's a, that's a part of the social tradition. You read the church fathers and they are speaking in the prophetic language of the old Testament, you know, the prophets who are just screaming at God's people and screaming at these corrupt Kings of Israel. This is the language of the church fathers and Catholic social teaching. It's meant to unnerve us when we hear, you know, the excess food you have in your cupboard, you are stealing from the person who's starving. That should wake us up. That's a prophetic word that should make us uncomfortable. You know, with all that said, I, I will offer a pushback. And um, th that is that there's a there's a very big difference between the way that our economies and the way that wealth is uh, created, transferred, destroyed back at the time of most of these church fathers who you're referencing um, and today. So back then the rate of economic growth was near as makes no difference zero and if it was positive it was probably just linked to a, uh, a like an increase in population um, or maybe migration into the area not so much like an increase in overall ability to generate wealth now that's very different from today where it is totally normal for us to expect that there will be new wealth created year upon year and growth and productivity growth so let me just, you know, offer this. If you imagine that there was more or less a fixed amount of wealth and that if somebody had a lot of it, it was kind of a zero sum game. That means that somebody didn't have it. It meant that it was lost by somebody else for somebody else to gain. At which point I think that the quotes that you're saying are extra specially powerful um, in that case, because yes, that does um somebody else not having it, and it was transferred away in order for somebody to accumulate. However, today, in a uh, broadly free market system that we generally have, um, there's always an equal and opposite reaction in a given exchange. And without getting overly technical, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a split between consumer and producer surplus. So producer surplus, we commonly just term profit. And we're all yeah. familiar that, you know, lots of companies make profit. But in a competitive market, there's a roughly equal split. And most people don't know that. So on the other side, um, I, well, I guess if you take anyways, I won't describe the graph. But on the other side of that, there's a consumer surplus that we get. And a simple example is, um, let's say the price of milk is $4. Well, I would probably be willing to pay $5. Like if that's the price, sure. I'll still buy my milk at $5. Thank you. It is worth $5 to me for sure. More than four. But the market price is only four, which is awesome. So you could see that as a $1 consumer surplus. That's value that I got in excess of what um, I would have been willing to pay at a maximum. And on the other side of that equation, there's profit for the milk company which you know is actually probably like 12 cents a gallon or something tiny um but but i know that's a lot to kind of throw out there and have you reflect on because i know that economics isn't necessarily one of your um your uh your areas of expertise but i i do think that in a way that um 
I, I don't want to say softens because I still want people to feel bad, <laughs> but it does. It does soften in that we that every dollar that a wealthy person earned in a free market system had an equal and opposite reaction in the form of value created for a counterparty. And that was not always true in human history. So I just want to put that on the table. You can react to that, move on, do whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I've not, I've not studied economics. I am just a catechist, but um, here's how, here's how I've come. And so sp- speaking very personally, here's how I've come to understand Catholic social teaching. And it is, um, it is not policy. Rather, it's the proclamation of the radical and uncomfortable gospel of Jesus Christ and the type of world that Jesus wants us to have. A world, you know, bringing the kingdom of God on earth. Um, and it's meant to every generation um, of popes yeah, is guided by the Holy Spirit to reflect on this moment in time, this generation, and teach those gospel values in that in their particular context. And we are supposed to receive it. We as Catholics, as Christians, are supposed to receive it and internalize and integrate those values into our conscience um, to then live live accordingly, um, live according to the kingdom. So how it relates to economic policy. Well, if you have a Christian who's internalized these values and is now working on economic policy, he's doing precisely what um, Catholic social teaching would want him to do. I think you asking these questions is exactly what Catholic social teaching wants us to do. Um, To not see these teachings as policy, but to see them as values that are absolutely essential. And then, now, how do I make policy with those values in mind? Does that distinction make sense? I, I think you're getting on some really good things. I mean, God, I, to kind of sum up and reflect back what you're saying, it sounds like our job as Christians is not to create the ideal social structure to like churn out mechanistically good for the sake of God's glory, but instead it's to um, form society and first form ourselves. Such society is, is formed in a way that reflecting Christ becomes habitual and easy. Um, so these laws shouldn't just be based around utilitarian ends, but it should, but the law ought to be a teacher um, to channel people towards virtue away from vice such that we can um, be collectively imaging, imaging our creator better. Would that be a reasonable summary? Yes, and and to really be working towards bringing bringing the kingdom of God on earth. So if we look at the consequences of sin, like suffering and poverty and death, these are all things that God does not will. And these are precisely the things that Jesus comes and frees people of. His whole ministry is freeing people of sin and sickness and even death. And we are to continue that um, both in our personal lives, um, but also in as lay people, especially like our vocation as lay people is to be in the world and to transform the structures of our world. So if we're involved in politics um, and all of us are, at least to the extent that we vote, but if we're involved even in local politics is to bring these values, the values of the kingdom of God to our local, um, you know, township meetings. If we are involved in in decision-making 
um, in a business, we're called to bring the values of the kingdom of God to those things. So it's individual, but then there's also, it's very much, how do we continue to transform the world, knowing that the world is still fallen and we are not going to create a perfect society, um, but we must always be working towards that. So let me put on my economist hat and um, you, you can you can put on your moral theologian hat and um, let, let me just kind of lay something out and, and you can you can critique it from a purely moral perspective. So with regards to the rich, um, you know, and we'll define those as people who have um, assets far in excess to their needs at the first two tiers that you described. Yeah. There's, I, I divide them into three very different categories, and I call them the rich who give, the rich who invest or save, um, and the rich who consume. So in the first category, um, as this relates to tax policy, which is what I'll, I'll try to kind of keep this um, limited to, we wouldn't want to tax people who are rich and they, they want to give. So if they're going to give all this away, we would rather have them be giving at their level of subsidiarity, dealing with the things which are presented to them, then take away their ability to act charitably and then push that into a bureaucracy. So um, th- th- that's what I, I would not want to tax those who give. Then the next question is, um, what about those who save or invest? Savings is equals investment. Um, so we'll treat that as one. Um, well, these people actually are already turned their wealth over for the sake of the common good. It's hard to think of money-wise, but it's really easy to think of resource-wise. So if, if I had a giant plot of land and I had a factory over somewhere else and I had all these different productive assets, if I let them just lay fallow and inactive, that would be like hoarding. However, if I turn those over so that labor, capital, materials, all sorts of stuff can come in and start generating things for my neighbors, that's promoting the common good. So to me, it seems like we we should not tax or discourage those who are already turning their 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 wealth over to the common good um, for the sake of, of, you know, in the economic sphere, just like we shouldn't um, tax people who turn their wealth over to the common good in the charitable sphere. But there's that third category, and those are the people who consume their wealth. And I, in a way, you know, there's, you talk about there being an injustice, and I, I see your point. But on the other hand, um, you know, they gave first in a market system, you have to give before you are given, you have to make before you take. So they made some amount of wealth and now they're taking their Ferrari, their yacht, things like that. So if I'm presented with these three categories, it seems like two are actually like positively virtuous and one at best is ambiguous and at worst is actually vicious. So uh, put your moral theologian hat on and see if you can comment on those categories. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. Yeah, um, I have mixed thoughts. So I'm actually not, um, I have a pretty critical view of significant philanthropy. So um, I think that, you know, to use the image of like the Rockefellers or something, um, who gave a tremendous amount of wealth in developing um, uh, this country. They also had a disproportionate say in how that wealth was used. And their personal preferences were imposed on um, 
who they were giving towards. I mean, they had says in um, how, you know, when they funded a school, they, they had a say in the type of education models that were being used. Um, so for me, if their excess wealth belonged to the poor already, um, that it shouldn't be them who decides how that money is used. Um, it should go to the people who that money belonged to in the first place. Um, so, yeah, does that make sense? Is that criticism? Is that fair? Um, yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense for the, you know, I, a lot of charities. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of there, there's one story which I love. There's a, uh, uh, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some of this wrong. So take this as a parable, not a uh, actual story. Um, there was, I think, a UN group or, a, a, or some type of group which went to Africa. And uh, there's an Italian fellow there. And he looks at this beautiful land near this river. And he says, guys, you know, you can grow the tomatoes here. You can grow the basil. This is a Mediterranean climate. We can grow all these things. I will show. I will show. And the native Africans go, no, we, we don't. We don't farm here. And he's like, no, no, you do. You farm here now. We, we will help you. So they, they drag these natives over. Come on, you know, farm with us, all this stuff. And they finally succeed in making this big garden plot there. And uh, sure enough, it's amazingly productive. Um, you know, all these tomatoes are just turning ripe. And this guy feels like, wow, I really helped these simple people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just so awesome. And then the time comes a giant nearly endless herd of hippopotamuses come surging down the river up bust through everything in the garden eat all the tomatoes base all the crops that they did go right back into the river and they're gone same day and he goes and he's like guys why didn't you tell me about the hippos they're like well we told you we don't farm here (laughs) you know (laughs) so i bring that up because you know this is kind of the Hayekian, uh, Friedrich Hayek's uh, local knowledge problem that, and it dovetails into the principle of subsidiarity, whereby the problems which are presented to us specifically, we probably have the most knowledge of. And as we push it higher and higher up, uh, you know, a hierarchy or, you know, at a more distant level of subsidiarity, we lose information. Um, so there's definitely an arrogance to think, well, I can just supersede and supervene upon any type of native practices because i'm awesome so i I definitely agree with with um with that uh part of the critique i i think that the focus needs to be on uh and that's a wonderful example of subsidiarity which is that we need to be um helping to enfranchise people not to presume to know what's best for them um we need to be giving people more, uh, more, more means to develop themselves and their own communities and not presume that, like, <laughs> that we know better than they do and we know their problems better than they know their problems. And, and after wholeheartedly and, um, you know, enthusiastically uh, supporting a lot of that, I, I will give a little bit of a pushback. And that's, you know, what I referenced earlier, the are we our brother sleeper? And as Catholics, we answer that with, yes, we are, whether we like it or not. And, um, you know, we're, we're not agnostic as to the good. We're not relativists. We believe in, 
you know, there are virtues, there are vices, there are goods, there are bads. Um, we should ultimately direct all of our ends towards our creator as the highest good. So at what times would you say um, we should, in light of things that we know um, from the infallible magisterium, for example, um, it, it, let me give you a more concrete one because that's a bit abstract. Th there are charities right now like in Africa who at very worst are offering abortion services, which is awful. There are also some which offer contraception, which we also oppose as Catholics. And then there are ones who, you know, are, are taking other tacks. If we were to just give money to, say, a local group, um, there's a high probability that they could choose one of those first two options in seeking to solve their problems. So at that point, I would definitely support um, having strings attached, even though in a sense it's, on one side, restraining their libertine freedom. It, I, I think that that's actually freeing them more by helping to guide them towards uh, virtue. And I think virtue is where you find the fullness of flourishing, the fullness of freedom. So there's definitely a tension between multiple views of what freedom is. That's why I agreed with you at the start. But how would you deal with the situation where their freedom could enslave them to sin? Yeah, Um I mean, with that particular example, I would ask, is it even their freedom? My impression is, is that most developing countries don't want the sexual mores and values of the West imposed on them. Um, like the actual local communities um, may not be interested. And in, it's, it's the charities that are imposing those values. Um, and it would be the charities that are violating subsidiarity. You know, you know fair enough. That's, you know, th that's probably true but you know most uh, most other um you know most developing nations uh they haven't uh, bought all that kind of sexual revolution stuff like we did so they're certainly got a moral leg up on us there but um more generally you know yeah. pose the question another way it's just imagine assume that was true you make a good point that yeah they probably do already reject that and we do push the wrong stuff on there but if there's an a couple options, some of which would, we would take as intrinsically evil. Um, how do we play that out? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two competing values here. Um, one is our desire to um, to uh, help people flourish, right? To make it easier to be virtuous and more difficult um, to do harm, right? Um, on the other hand, the, the church very much values um, very much values respecting the freedom of others. So in his letter um, a year ago, um, in his apostolic letter announcing the year of St. Joseph, um, Pope Francis um, had a long exhortation about the life and values of St. Joseph. And he, and he talks about Joseph, um, Joseph's chastity. And Pope Francis defines chastity. I love this. I keep going back to this all year. Chastity is love free from possessiveness. And then Pope Francis says, this is how God loves us. God loves us with perfect chastity because he loves us um, uh, and totally respects our freedom. And what's implied in all of this is that we are to love others with that same lack of possessiveness. Um, that that I, I love someone else. And in doing so, I also respect their choices, even if I know that their choices are um, harmful to themselves. So I, I see these two things as um, 
uh, I don't know, not in contradiction, but we have to weigh them and we have to discern the particular situations, I think, um, with that. Does that make sense to answer your question? You know, I, I think you're hitting on the problem of we always want to reduce wisdom and prudence down to like a set of robotic instructions or like a flow chart. You know, if they're going to do this, then we're going to do this. And that's just not how wisdom um, oh, yeah. How wisdom we, works. You know, we love we love lot. rules. We love we love morality being reduced to a set of rules and behaviors um, when in reality it's integrating values into our conscience. And then, I mean, our conscience is what takes the rules and the values and the objective norms and applies them to particular situations. It's, it's, in, yeah. it's in our conscience that we exercise prudence and wisdom. But we just want we just want the list of rules. <laughs> That's what we desperately want. I compare it to like either a solo scriptura view or the Catholic view of scripture and tradition being like the, the living explication and, you know, integration of what is taught in the, you know, the positive faith. Yeah. I think we've covered most of the things we were looking to cover. Is there anything that you want to expand? Comments you, you want to make or maybe a last appeal of why you should feel bad about your <laughs> greedy excess and instead you should uh, you should uh, seek to cultivate virtue in yourself and uh, give stuff away in, in charity. Yes. So um, uh, what the catechism is about Catholic social teaching. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of teaching here. but It'll be really quick. Um, the catechism says that the church's social teaching um, is articulated as the church interprets events in, in the course of history with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, um, and that the church proposes principles for reflection, provides criteria for judgment, and gives guidelines for action. In other words, just as you were talking about with Sola Scriptura, we have a living magisterium that in every new generation reproposes the gospel for that gener generation, right? Um, and is able to follow with the people. It's the same with Catholic social teaching. The popes assess, they read the signs of the times, and then they propose the gospel into that context. With that in mind, our Pope wrote um, a major social encyclical just a year ago uh, for Telly Tutti. And he talks about the role of private property and excess wealth. Um, and I wanna share a little bit of what he says because it's especially important I think, because it's the Pope talking to us today in this generation, right? Um, so he says in Fratelli Tutti, he summarizes the teachings of the early fathers. And he says, the first Christians, um, a number of them developed a universal vision in their reflections on the common destination of created goods. This led them to realize that if one person lacks what is necessary to live, it is because another person is detaining it. Now, you push back on that with... Uh, uh, you know, modern economy, but the Pope is very aware of our modern economy, right? And he's bringing this principle well... right. <laughs> okay, he's more aware uh, I, I than do... <laughs> you know. He's more aware than Saint John Chrysostom in the fourth century, right? Yeah, no, that's um, true, and that's why I think the principle carries over. But I definitely take issue with the specifics. I think that he is he is right in principle that um, if we have this type of excess, we need to be. Um, turning it over for the the service of others, so I definitely agree with that. But but, um, but yeah, but the but the mind of the church is, um, which I would say is 
is really the mind of the Holy Spirit is that this principle is valuable for today. Right. For whatever reason, with, we need to hear this. Principle. Yeah. Well, um, are you ready for some? Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. And then we got some mailbag questions coming up. No, that's perfect. Let's go for it. Okay, perfect. All righty. Um, as always, we have some uh, interesting ones. We have zero filter. We will read any questions so long as it's not like explicit or something. Um, I think you're going to like this first one. Um, all right. So if if briefs reduce sperm count in comparison to wearing boxers, does that make briefs a form of contraception? Why or why not? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, okay. Hang on. Hang on. I'm going to put on my... Uh, my um, catechist hat. You can, oh, right. you, can e- you can edit out this period of me looking up the exact quote if you need to. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. While you look it up, I'll, I'll give a um, I'll give my hot take on this one. All right. Yes. Um, I think that that as Catholics, we we believe in a teleological world. We think that things are directed towards ends. Therefore, I would say both boxers and briefs, neither of which are directed towards um, the reduction of life or the frustration of the marital act. Therefore, boxers and briefs alike, regardless of their consequences, are not a type of contraception per se. However, if one then directs them towards an end, um, which frustrates the marital act, i.e., in light of the research around sperm count and I guess box in uh, briefs uses them as a way of going contra conception or contraception, if you will, then yes. So my answer is both yes and no. How was, how was that? <laughs> no, that's a great answer. So here's the um, Humanae Vitae paragraph 14 has a very precise and narrow um, definition of contraception. So it says this, um, any action which either before, at the moment of, or after sexual intercourse, is specifically intended to prevent procreation. Okay, so you'd specifically have to intend it with your with your briefs. Yep. Okay, there you go. I think we answered that one well. Um, all right, next one, um, and feel free to give wrong answers about, about some of these. Um, not the important ones, but the less important ones. How often should I change my oil? That's a practical question. I mean, my dad told me every 3,000 miles, so that's that's what I do. I mean, my my more economic perspective says that um, you can treat this as an investment. It's a, you know, a series of contributions in order to, in this case, avoid a giant cost. But that's not, in principle, terribly different from a series of small investments to generate a large reward at the end. So I think that you should... Um, you should just look at your internal rate of return, right? If if you have like a business that every dollar you put in, or let's say every $60 that you would have put in an oil change, you can generate like $200 of return. Well, no, don't change your oil. Maybe you should just take all your oil changing money and dump it into other productive activities. So I'm going to say you got to look at, at, at the tail event of, of destroying your engine, whether or not you could absorb that risk, what your internal rate of return is. There you that, go. that was a much more complicated response. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, complication. I, I love it. I love it. I, I try, you know, the goal of this podcast is to take things which are complicated and make them simple. Um, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Some are, um, are kind of more surface level entertaining, but a little bit vapid. And others are more um, 
intellectual, academic, but a bit dry. So I joke that mine is both um, dry and vapid. Um, but but in seriousness, I, I think we covered a ton of content and I want to make it accessible. It just, I'm almost allergic to that kind of super proper academic speak where it's all about just posturing and things. It drives me absolutely yumpy. Um, so I, I just want to cut through everything and be able to make things understandable. Um, so here's another question. Um, what is the best argument that you know of in favor of a flat earth? <laughs> this is hard. This is hard. None. I don't have any. None. Um, I know we shouldn't have dead air on a podcast. This is, this is really hard, but we got to get sent to it. Um, Hey, what's that? Is it Roman, um, Roman uh, theology, which whatever that uh, says that the earth sits on a turtle? Is that Rome? Is that Greek? What is that? I don't know. I just know the joke about turtles all the way down. Yeah, I, I know yeah. that. So that came to mind. But I think there's some type of, of religion or something that believes that there's a turtle. So here's what I'm going to say if you are a flat earther looking for another arrow in your quiver not that i want you to have any arrows in your quiver but whatever um if it were round it would fall off the turtle there <laughs> yeah if the earth is supported by turtles a globe would not be uh it, it wouldn't work it wouldn't it work and so i think it'd be easier to convince somebody of whatever that um you know pan or whatever that um theology was because we know that like millions of people believe that kind of stuff so that seems like maybe that'd be an easier way you just prove the turtle first and then you extrapolate that therefore if, if only if only we had um, machines in space that could take pictures <laughs> of those turtles for us <laughs> if only if only um let, well let's do one more um, let's do one more and I guess this is this is kind of um, you know it's not really turtle related this last one says why haven't aquatic mammals evolved gills again any any brilliant insights or, or sparks no. of no? no oh man this is so outside of my wheelhouse I, I mean the first i mean if you look at evolution it comes out of like uh mutations that actually improve the species so maybe they don't need to <laughs> right I, I think that's that's fair enough i mean if and, and you know it's not like one mutation poof you got like some you know some awesome gills I mean, it, it's pretty small and gradual so yeah i'm, I'm gonna stick with your answer and I, say there's no incremental change towards gills that would make a dolphin a better dolphin hey my kids love the movie shark boy and lava girl which isn't a great movie but <laughs> i mean this kid gets gills in like you know five or ten years okay i mean did, did you know some people are born with um like it's not full working gills but kind of gills have you heard about that no it's now nah, that's like totally a thing because basically the way our DNA works is like nothing gets deleted. It's like your laptop from college. You never deleted anything. <laughs> so like you can go back to previous versions. So uh, like there's the famous dino chicken project where they're trying to turn on, um, you know, uh, turned off DNA in the chicken and make it a type of dinosaur. 
I think they've had, I think they've given it teeth and like some things like that. It's, it's I may um, or may not have donated to that. Um, oh man, I recall a movie before. about uh, about something like that that goes incredibly <laughs> terribly. <laughs> that documentary about the dinosaurs on the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I hear you. Um, well, let's uh, let's wrap it all up, Paul. Um, wh- where can people find you? Are you working on anything uh, right now? Um, <laughs> I'm working on taking care of my family and enjoying Christmas break. Um, awesome. awesome. So people can find me um, most immediately at, at my blog, which is Pope Francis Generation at Substack. And I, I also write um, periodically for Where Peter Is. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, Paul. Jake, it was great talking with you. Great. All right. Have a good one. You too. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, and if you have friends and if you like sharing, then share it with your friends. If you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies. I greatly enjoyed having Paul on the podcast today for the very first interview episode of the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. If you also liked hearing from Paul, um, send me an email at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com and let me know what you think. Um, I'd be excited to have him on the podcast maybe to discuss some other stuff. We've um, briefly corresponded about usury and a couple other fun topics, so that might be in the pipeline in the future. As always, if you have any questions, send them to that same email address. Again, thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. We love to get these questions. We love wacky ones. We love practical ones. We love any question you send us. And again, we have no filter, so we will read it on the air. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you for next episode.